And please stand, uh, those of you who are able, for the reading of God's word. This is a reading from Exodus chapter three. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near, take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, but I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob has appeared to me saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. My name is Jeff. I am one of the pastors here. And uh, before we continue, would you please join with me in prayer?
Father, we again uh, pause uh, because we don't want to do this without being deeply aware that you are here right now with us, uh, that, that what we are seeking to do in these moments is not just to kind of learn information, uh, but to listen to you as you speak to us. And so, Lord, our prayer right now is that you would, by your Spirit, make us attentive to what you have to say, that you would open our minds and our hearts, that we might hear you, draw nearer to you, and more and more be made into the people you have created us to be. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we begin kind of this new, I suppose you can say, chapter in our lives, this new place that we're in, it seemed appropriate to me that we would consider together um, the topic of worship. And I realize even as I am saying that, that the idea of worship, the word worship, just kind of feels feels churchy, right? It feels somewhat irrelevant. It might even seem, if we're honest, boring. So I want to start by just trying to convince you that worship and talking about worship is immensely practical. And I'm going to do that by, by reading from a really famous uh, commencement address. A man by the name of David Foster Wallace, who himself was not a Christian, uh, gave a justly famous address to Kenyon College a few years ago. And here's something that he said during it that I found thought-provoking. He said, in the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping, because everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. On one level, we know this stuff already. It's been codified as myths and proverbs and parables, the skeleton of every great story. The trick is keeping the truth up front in our daily consciousness. If you worship power, you will feel weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to keep that fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out, and so on. Do you see what he's saying? We all worship. It's like breathing. We do it whether we're realizing it or not. It is innate to who we are. We live our lives according to some sense of purpose, some sense of meaning, some sense of what will give us deepest satisfaction. That's just what it means to be a human being. The choice we have, he says is only what we choose to worship. And we can choose something to worship that will make our lives good, or we can choose to worship something that will ultimately eat us alive. And he goes on to say what's the real danger in this is that if we don't choose, if we just go on autopilot, it will almost never be a good thing. Here's what he says. He says, look, the insidious thing about these forms of worship is that they are unconscious. They are default settings. 
They're the kind of worship you just gradually slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that that's what you're doing. And the world will not discourage you from operating on your default settings because the world of men and money and power hums along quite nicely on the fuel of fear and contempt and frustration and craving and the worship of self. This is the default setting. The rat race. The constant gnawing sense of having had and lost some infinite thing. Do do you hear this? He's saying, if we are not thoughtful, if we don't particularly think about our worship and choose what we will worship, our default will always be to worship what destroys us. And I think he's right. Worship is immensely practical. And with that in mind, I want to turn to our passage. It is it's a justly famous passage. It is really, you could say, the time when God reintroduces himself to the people of Israel now that they are a people and, and sets really the whole trajectory of the Old Testament in motion. And this week, as I've been reflecting on this passage, Exodus 3, I've tried to imagine what it, it must have been like for Moses. Remember, Moses at this time is not Moses, like this great famous figure. This is Moses the failure. I mean, he, he, in his early decades, with his youth, he sought to do good things for his people, and he, he failed. He's, he's exiled. For the last four decades, he has been doing nothing but living in the wilderness, watching sheep. Every day, pretty much the same as before. There is nothing important about Moses in this moment. And so, he, you can just imagine, if you're him, he's just having his normal day of watching sheep, which is not a terribly dramatic event, in case you're curious. And yet, one thing he notices, he's been watching for a while, a bush is on fire, which isn't that strange in a very dry climate, but the the strange thing is, of course, that it keeps on burning, and burning it never burns up. And so, if nothing else but to break the monotony, he decides that he is going to walk towards that bush and see what's going on. And then, the bush talks to him. I mean, again, try to imagine that, that you're just like walking by a shrubbery and it it says hello, except it doesn't even just say hello. It actually, imagine it calling you by name. All of a sudden you're hearing Jared or or Wayne or Susan, and and, I mean, and whatever your name is, and, and you realize this is not just like some sort of speaker. The bush is talking to you. And then a little bit more explanation. I am God. God of Abraham, the God of Jacob, the God of Isaac. Do not come any closer because because this is holy ground. In fact, you should remove your sandals from your feet. And in that moment, Moses, just like we would be, is is terrified. It says he, he hides his face in fear. And then what he hears next explains a little bit more. God says, I have seen the sufferings of my people. I have heard their cries. And I am going to do something about it. And what he speaks about right here, as I I said, setting into motion events that will literally change the very course of human history. 
the miraculous plagues, the parting of the Red Sea and the crushing of Pharaoh's army, the, the manna, all of the miracles forms this nation and continues to have reverberations and echoes throughout the world. I mean, continues to be stories told of it, movies made of it. But there's one detail that is actually quite central to this story that is almost always overlooked when it is told and retold and depicted in film. And it's what we see in, in verse 12. In verse 12, after God has said, not only am I going to do this, but Moses, I'm going to do this through you. Moses is understandably freaked out. And, and so he says, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And God says, but I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Or literally, you could just as easily translate it, you shall worship God on this mountain. Now, there's a couple interesting things about this. It is, if you think about it, this is not what we would have expected God to do to reassure Moses. What we would have hoped, I think, if we were in Moses' situation, is God saying, I want to do something awesome right now so that you can be sure that this is me and that this is okay, and then you can obey. But actually, that's not what God does. God says, obey, and then you will see this at the end of your obedience, and you will know that I've been a part of that. I'd love to think more about that, because that's interesting. Obey first, and then God reassures. But that's actually not what I want us to consider this morning. What I want you to notice is what the intended outcome of this salvation is. God is saying, I am going to save my people I'm going to rescue them, and here's what I'm doing it for, to bring them to me so that they would worship me. Do you see that? If, if we don't catch it here, this is so central to the story that God repeats this again and again. If, if we just moved to chapter 4, we would see God saying, tell Moses, sorry, to Moses, tell Pharaoh, Israel is my firstborn son. Let my son go that he may worship me. A couple chapters later, God says, Moses, here's what you tell Pharaoh. Let my people go that they might worship me. Do you hear that? Again and again, whenever it's let my people go, we all know that that's what it's, you know, like the story is about. Moses tells Pharaoh, let my people go. No, that's, that's not what this is. That's not the end of the sentence. It's let my people go that they might worship me. The purpose of God saving this people, of bringing them out of, of Egypt, is not just that they're no longer slaves. That's part of it. It's so that they can be a people who worship God. And in case you think that that's just potentially just an Exodus thing or an Old Testament thing, the New Testament makes it clear that, that when we understand the salvation that comes in Christ Jesus, it's for the very same purpose. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one, that is Jesus, has died for all. Therefore, all have died. And Christ died for all so that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Do you hear that? Why does Jesus die? 
Well, there's a lot of reasons that we could say he dies so that our sins might be forgiven. He dies so that we might have eternal life. But also what we're told here is he died so that you and I would no longer be worshiping ourselves. He died so that we might worship God through Christ Jesus. We have been saved so that we might worship the true God. I want to say, I don't think this is something that churches talk enough about. In our culture, we do spend a lot of time talking about salvation and about how when Christ died for us, there's forgiveness and how we have eternal life. And it is so important that we hear these things. I'm not diminishing those in any way, but how often do we hear about why we have been saved? Sometimes I think we have interpreted the message to say, you are saved so that now you can feel, you know, feel the American dream, live the American dream, and you don't have to worry because when you die, you will go to heaven. But that's not what the gospel is. The gospel is you have been saved so that you might worship. Romans 12 says, in light of God's mercy, now that you've understood that you have been saved, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do you hear that? We are saved so that as a result, we can offer ourselves in every way. Living sacrifice means it's an ongoing giving of self to God. That is what God's intent in saving us has always been, that we might worship him. Now, I wonder if that idea sounds a little odd to us, if we're honest. Maybe even it almost feels a little selfish on God's part? Like, why, why is it that God needs us to worship him? And that's, that's the wrong question. God absolutely does not need us to worship him. God is not like us. He does not need praise. He doesn't need to be reassured. For all eternity, Father, Son, and Spirit have been enjoying each other in full glory and delight. He is completely content and joyful without us. Now, when we're talking about how God has rescued us so that we can worship him, he wasn't doing that for himself. He's doing that for us. Because the reality is, if we worship anything less than the true God, our lives will not be what they were meant to be. We we will not be able to experience life with meaning. We will not be able to have satisfaction in our life if we give ourselves over to anything less than God himself. I mean, that's, that's what Foster Wallace was saying, wasn't he? That if you give yourself to beauty or to power, it will eat you alive. Because we are, we are people who need meaning and purpose, don't we? That's part of what it is to be a human being. You know, we might not feel like we're terribly deep. We might not be asking ourselves the question, what's the meaning of life? But you and I, our lives are organized around some sense of purpose. That's, that's what we need. I, I was reading about this. There's this book that I was rereading over the uh, last few weeks, Making Sense of God by Keller, which I really like. And he was talking a little bit about meaning. Um, And he was uh, talking about one study, actually it wasn't even a study, it was a retirement home, where one doctor persuaded the retirement home to bring in a whole bunch of animals. I mean, parakeets, rabbits, cats, dogs, for, for the residents to be taken care of. And so some of these parakeets start getting adopted, 
and, and some of these other animals, people started walking the dogs. And, and what was described is, in some ways, a whole bunch of people almost came back to life. Like people who had stopped talking or functioning suddenly asked if they could watch the dog or walk the dog. Other people suddenly started more having habits, uh, giving some more specifics. The need for psychotropic drugs was nearly halved, and deaths fell by 15%. And the doctor's explanation was, I believe that the difference in death rates can be traced to the fundamental human need for a reason to live. Because that's what it means to be human, right? We, we need a reason. We need a, a sense of purpose, something bigger than ourselves that we know that our lives are meant for. That's how you and I are wired. But if... if God is not at the center, if God's not the one that we worship and that we look to for meaning, how does that even work? Because if we're not created by God, how can we even say that our lives have a purpose? I mean, we're just accidents, if we're really honest. The best we can do is just kind of try to make our lives have a purpose. We can kind of pretend that they have some sort of meaning. But reality means the only rational thing is for us just to kind of figure out how do I make myself as happy as I can, which is hardly meaning. We are creatures who need meaning, and yet without God at the center, we cannot truly find meaning. And speaking of, of happiness, um, I was interested, there's this... Um, I heard about this a little while ago. Uh, the most popular class at Yale University ever just was held. Uh, maybe you've seen some of this in the news. Here's, here's the name of the class. More than one-fourth of the entire student body took this class at once. It was that popular. And, and the, the class's name was Psychology and the Good Life. It was a class on how to be happy. Isn't that interesting? Um, in this newspaper article that I was reading about it, the, the president of Yale University explained it this way. He said, I think students are looking for meaning. Another way of putting it is students haven't yet figured out what to worship. Interestingly, if you look at this syllabus, which is available online of this class, one of the very first things it seeks to do is show just how terrible people are at trying to make themselves happy just how poor people are at being able to predict what will actually give themselves delight. There are things that in, in our culture we set up as, this is what I need to be satisfied, right? And, and we can go through the list, you know, success, fame, certain kinds of relationships, wealth, comfort. Each of these we set up, and each of these, when we actually attain them, are never as satisfying as we expect them to be, right? I mean, we can just see this empirically. It, it, think of the people, when you think of the things that sometimes you're inclined to be driven by, the things that you know, hey, I probably shouldn't, this probably shouldn't matter to me as much as it does, but it does. Think of the people that you know who have gotten that to the fullest extent, whether it's wealth or, or fame or whatever it is. Are those people that you say, that is the utmost of happiness. I have never seen people more happy than that. 
Almost all the time, when we look at celebrities, what do we see? We see people who can't hold marriages together. We see people who seem to always be without happiness. There, there is this sense that anyone who actually gets what we think will make her happy is made miserable by it. In, in the same book that I was talking about, Keller writes this. He says, if you are younger, it is natural to say to yourself, I have heard about these disillusioned celebrities and wealthy people who say their life isn't happy. But if I get anything like what I'm hoping for, I'll be different. No, you won't, Keller says. Nobody in the end has ever been different. How many people live their lives just focusing on the next goal, the next project, the next deadline, the next family vacation, and just keep their eyes just there so they don't have to really ask questions about what their life is about and whether they're actually happy? Or, or how many people make their lives so busy that they don't have to think about these things? Or, or how many people live constantly with this kind of ache, this gnawing sense that there should there should be something more, something bigger, something more satisfying than whatever it is they're pursuing. See, see what we're talking about here, it's not just a need for, for better medication. It's not just a need for better exercise. It's a worship problem. Because anytime we look to anything that is less than God, we will never find the meaning that we are created for. We will never find the satisfaction that we were made for. This is why I'm saying God is not saying I have saved you so that you can worship because God needs it. It's because we need it. Augustine famously said, our hearts are restless and they will not rest until they rest in you, God. We were made to worship God. And anything less, anything less than God will never satisfy us and will ultimately eat us alive. I mean, what do we see about God even, even in the passage that we were just looking at? We see that God is, is unimaginably great. Do you remember what, you know, like when, when Moses is approaching God, God says, don't get any closer, because what you're standing on is holy ground. And this is not God boasting, or this is not God making some kind of strange rules. God is warning gently and kindly Moses that if he gets any closer, his existence might get just snuffed out. Because God is so much greater and so much beyond Moses, and Moses is so sinful in comparison to God that the very fabric of reality is such that you cannot get so close to God in that condition because God is so much beyond. A little bit later on in the same passage, what, what do we see God saying? And Moses asks God, okay, if I'm supposed to go, because he's still obviously uncertain about this whole idea, if I'm supposed to go and tell Israel, I spoke with God, could you just clarify which God you are? Like, what's your name so that I can be clear with Israel? And, and what does God say? Say, I am that I am. When Moses asks, what's your name? He says, I am 
that I am. Tell them I am sent you. And then a little bit later he says, this is my name, the Lord. Literally, in Hebrew, it's, it's Yahweh, which most scholars think is, is another form of the word saying he is. Tell them he is sent you. Now, when God is saying that, when he's saying, my name is I am, my name is he is, he's not being just trying to be like opaque or mysterious. He is being as truthful as he can be. Because to describe God in any other way, to use any other descriptor, is going to distort. Now, I wanted to get too deep for too long, but just think for a moment about every adjective we use is ultimately a comparison. So if I were to say, hey, that person is really kind, what does your mind do? How do you think of kindness? Almost certainly, the only reason that you even know what kindness is is at some point you have experienced kindness personally. You've seen someone be kind, and that's formed for you the idea of what kindness is like. It's always a comparison. When you're saying that one's kind to you, what that ultimately means is this person is like that other experience of, of kindness I had however many years ago. But, but how do we compare God to anything? Any word that we are saying about God, that God is good or whatever, we are saying God is like this other experience that we've had of goodness or love or kindness. And the problem is, he isn't. God is so far beyond our experience of human love and human kindness, and human goodness, of anything we've ever experienced. He is so far greater because he is God that the truest thing that God can say about himself, who am I? I am. He is immeasurably great. And yet in these verses we also see something else, and that is that he is unimaginably good. He doesn't just say, I am. He says, tell them the Lord, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And, and regularly, that's how I, he identifies himself. And, and what he's doing is he's reminding Moses, I'm the one who loves Abraham. I'm the one who loved Isaac and Jacob. And because I love them, I bound myself to them, I made promises to them, and I continue to love my people. And, and what does he say? He says, I, the God of the universe, the great I am, I have been watching. I, I see your suffering, and I care. I, I've heard your prayers you know, one of the great difficulties I think about prayer is that when we start getting a vision for how amazing, enormous, vast God truly is, it becomes so hard to believe that God himself would actually listen to us. And yet God is saying right now, I, the God of the universe, who's the center of all things, I have been paying attention. I have seen your suffering. I hear you when you pray, even if it doesn't feel that way. Even if it feels like I'm far away, I listen, I care, I love. That, that's what we see when God is revealing himself. Not only is he this amazing God, but he's this amazingly good and loving God. Now, Moses doesn't even know the half of it. He doesn't know what is going to happen. And even more than that, Moses could not possibly imagine 
just how far God is willing to go, just how much God loves not just even the people of Israel, but, but all of the people in the world, just how aware God is not just of the suffering under Pharaoh, but the suffering all humanity experiences under their own sin and death. And Moses could not possibly comprehend that the great I am who is incomparably beyond all things would choose in love to give his son to die for you and for me because he cares to rescue us and enable us to worship him. Now let me just ask you, what, what other thing, what other person can we say this of? What other thing in the world can be so great, so glorious, that it is worthy of our worship, of our giving ourselves to it in a way that will give our lives meaning? What, what else in the universe is there that is so good that even if we give our lives completely to it, we will not lose ourselves, but we will actually find ourselves? And even when we fail, we will find forgiveness and grace. Is it your jobs? I mean, our jobs can be fantastic, but they are not the center of our world. We know that. And what's more, we know that if we give and give and give, our jobs can devour us. And if we fail, our jobs often will not be forgiving. Is it our relationships? Relationships are blessings from God. But if you make that the center of your lives, I guarantee there will be fractures within that relationship and it will ultimately break because it cannot bear that way. Can we give ourselves to comfort, give ourselves to possessions, give ourselves to success? Again and again, none of these things deserve to be the center of our lives. You and I will only be able to live life with meaning. We will only be able to experience life with satisfaction when we have come to understand what it means that we were made to worship God. Your God saved you so that you can worship him because he loves you. As I close, I just want to suggest a different way of viewing even this space that we're now beginning to meet week in after week on Sunday mornings for worship. To not just see this as a pleasant space, which it is, to not even just see it as a place where we get to see each other, which it is, but to see this as actually God's training ground for you and for me. I am not a golfer. Um, anyone who has seen me golf can attest to that. But I know that those who care deeply about golf will not just be golfing at the golf course, but you'll regularly see them at the driving range. And as I understand it, the reason for doing that is if you do it again and again and again, and if you get it right again and again and again and focus during that time, then the idea is once you get to the golf course, just naturally you'll have absorbed how to do things well and your game will get better. I want to suggest that something similar is actually designed to take place when God brings us together on Sunday mornings. He is training you and me for lives of worshiping him. When, when we sing, when we are adoring God, our hearts are being taught how to worship. 
when we're spending time even right now listening to God, we are, we are being formed not just in the moment, but it's a practice that is shaping us. When we have the Lord's Supper, when we pray, when we spend time in confession and repentance, if we open ourselves up to what God is doing, He is training us so that again and again as we do it, we might internalize what we were made for so that as we work throughout the week, we more and more might learn what it means to offer our bodies as living sacrifices and experience the joy of worshiping the one that we are created for. And my prayer is that is exactly what would take place week after week as we gather together here. Even now we have the opportunity to offer ourselves in worship to God as we've heard God's word to spend time in prayer maybe confessing where we have put something else above God, maybe asking God for help. I'd like to invite you to respond to God's word by spending some time in silence and in prayer. In a few minutes, I will lead us in prayer together. Would you please silently respond to God in confession and prayer? Father, we were made for you. It's a reality we often forget to our own detriment. Lord, we confess our sinfulness. We take hold of the reality that we are forgiven in Christ Jesus, and we ask as those who belong to you, who are loved by you, that more and more you would train us to worship you be able to enjoy you, to be able to find you as our purpose, that we might live lives well with satisfaction. For that is what you deserve, and that is what we want. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Here are the words from Ezekiel. God says, I will sprinkle clean water upon you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. A new heart I will give you, and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove from your body the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Brothers and sisters, in Jesus Christ, your sins have been forgiven, and you are made clean. Thanks be to God.